So I'll dive right in. Um, I'm going to spend a fair amount of time uh, trying to give a, a rushing through sort of a 40 year uh, history, the most sort of recent 40 years of Afghanistan's history, um, try to give context for why we find ourselves in the situation in Afghanistan we cur currently find ourselves, and of course where the Afghans currently find themselves, um, where we are in terms of US policy toward Afghanistan, uh, describe a little bit of my experience there, which was from 2018 to 2019. Um, our tours in Afghanistan are typically very short. Um, and, uh, and then close with uh, a little, just a little bit of background of the rest of my, uh, what is becoming, really becoming a long career. I didn't know it would ever be that long, but um, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, and then obviously, of course, leave, leave some time for questions. Uh, I want to be the first to admit, especially because my time there was relatively short, I do not consider myself an Afghanistan expert. There may well be people in this, in this uh, call who have spent more time in Afghanistan than I have, or who have studied Afghanistan more closely than I did. Um, and I, you know, I'm certainly open to be corrected um, uh, on things. I don't want, again, I don't want to give you the illusion that I am an Afghanistan expert. Uh, I have colleagues in the State Department who have done multiple tours in Afghanistan, who have worked on the issue for many years of their career. Um, I, I, I did, obviously, you could not have worked in the Foreign Service after 2001 without working on the issue because it has been a preoccupation of American foreign policy, certainly since then. Um, uh, but uh, there may be folks who have more context and more background than I do, and certainly happy to be to make this sort of part of a conversation. Um, it is in many ways uh, a country that is surprisingly important, I guess. And what I mean by that is it's, uh, it's, it's not a huge country. Um, it has, sorry, there we go. Uh, it has a population of about 38 million, which is you know, not a gigantic country um, by, by kind of any standards. Uh, there has been no formal census, census since 1979 for kind of obvious reasons. So that 38 million is, is a bit of a guess. Um, you can see there the ethnic breakdown, which again is fairly approximate. There is no majority population uh, in Afghanistan. The, the largest population are Pashtuns. Uh, then about, as you can see, Tajiks, Hazara, uh, Uzbeks, uh, and so on. Um, it is of course a majority, strong majority, overwhelmingly majority uh, Muslim nation. Um, the Hazara, which again, as I said, are about 10% of the population, are for the most part uh, Shia, uh, and then the, the rest uh, practice some form of Sunni Islam. Um, it's a poor country, of course. Uh, that's something, if, any, if people know anything about Afghanistan, they typically know that it's a fairly poor country. Uh, and that remains the case, of course. It's, it's well down, as you can see, 113th in the world per capita GDP. But you can see that in 2001, it was even more desperate, uh, basically the bottom <laughs> um, in terms of uh, per capita GDP. Low life expectancy, that's not, that's not really a surprise uh, when you see those other indicators. Uh, it's landlocked. Let's take a look at the map. Um, uh, geography is in some ways destiny. Uh, uh, <laughs> Afghanistan's neighbors are very complicated. Uh, their relations with their neighbors are generally rather complicated. 
Uh, and you can see it's not the easiest neighborhood necessarily to live in. You've got uh, your biggest border, Pakistan, covering the south and the east of the country. Uh, you can see that little teeny stretch of Badakhshan province that reaches and touches China. That's a very rough frontier there. That's not something you're going to see, you know, lots of people back and forth all the time. You have the stands, uh, as we call them in the foreign service business up to the north, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan. Um, and of course, you have a very complicated neighbor to the west, uh, Iran. And uh, just to give you a sense, hopefully you can see my cursor here. So here's Kabul, the capital. So you can see pretty far in the eastern part of the country. Um, People may remember a very famous battle uh, after 9-11, Tora Bora. That was the area where we pinned, we and our Afghan allies pinned uh, Osama bin Laden uh, down. It's, if you can see my cursor, it's right sort of here. Uh, this little area is called the Parrot's Beak. Uh, and it was this area here where Tora Bora is. So this is not a, um, a relief map, but you have to understand about Afghanistan is, is uh, much of the country is extremely mountainous. Uh, this area, much of the area, especially in this part of the Afghan border um, is, is, you know, extremely difficult terrain. Uh, and uh, Tora Bora, as we famously know, has a series of caves, very hard to navigate. And as, as the world knows, Osama bin Laden eventually escaped to, to Pakistan. Then that's sort of another story for another day. Pashtuns, as I said, are the largest group. They tend to congregate more sort of in the east and south of the country. That's a tendency. There are Pashtuns everywhere. There are Tajiks everywhere. It's not like it's not like it's incredibly monochromatic. But this part down here is generally considered uh, sort of the the Pashtun heartland, um, where it's a fairly strong majority of Pashtun. Kabul is a very cosmopolitan city, uh, and it has you know, a strong mix of really all the ethnicities, including many Hazara. And Hazara, they don't tend to take up a huge part of the country, but these provinces here, Bamiyan, here, Kabul, kind of this neck of the woods, you'll find more Hazara, and then some kind of in a band heading out to Iran. There is, um, you will hear some people express concern about the Hazara population, saying that they are you know, sort of subject to Iranian command and all of that because of the, uh, the, the, the commonality of the Shia, uh, of the practice of the Shia brand of Islam. Uh, I didn't really find that necessarily to be the case. Uh, Hazara uh, tend to be very moderate. Um, it is true that many, many, many Afghans, including many, many Hazara, uh, especially in the past, went to Iran to work. They were going simply for employment. Um, many, many of them not treated very well. Um, uh, so I, I really don't, I did not see a lot of evidence. Uh, you would hear though from sort of anti-Hazara uh, folks, you know, this kind of sentiment that they are somehow tied to the Iranians. I don't think that's really the case. Tajiks and uh, Tajiks and, and uh, Uzbeks and some of the other, uh, some of the other folks tend again to kind of congregate a bit more in the Northern part of the country. Um, uh, as I said, the country is very mountainous. The, most of the really strong agriculture tends to be more in the south. It's when you get to the south into places like Kandahar and Helmand and others that you will have some very fertile areas. It's a very dry country though, for the most part. Um, yeah, much of it is desert. It's sort of it's very high desert. Uh, I found that when I 
um, flew over Kabul. And if you went anywhere in Kabul, well, not anywhere in Kabul, but if, for example, you were going to the airport in Kabul or going outside of Kabul, you would always take a helicopter from our embassy. And I found flying over Kabul reminded me a little bit about fly, a little bit of flying over Tucson, Arizona, where I spent a fair amount of time. Uh, high desert, very dry, um, and it was surrounded by mountains. And that's that really it really gives you kind of the same feeling. Uh, definitely some agriculture. They grow obviously the usual sort of things you need to stay alive, like you know uh, uh, grains and and so on and so forth. Um, uh, saffron is a is a real um, I mean a potential money maker. They grow a lot of saffron, uh, which is very expensive as you know. And India is a major consumer. Uh, they grow things like tree nuts and things like that. But um, unfortunately, probably the number one crop from Afghanistan, as many of us know, is poppy. Um, it is the heroin, you know, definitely one of the heroin centers of the world um, and, and has been for some time. Uh, it's poppy is relatively easy to grow, uh, especially in that climate. And uh, unfortunately, the sort of constant state of con conflict uh, makes it very difficult to, to prevent that. Um, so I'm skipping, as I said, a lot of history. Afghanistan did not begin in 1979, but the kind of current uh, rather long phase of Afghanistan's uh, recent past really started in 1979. Uh, the Soviets invade. Um, uh, I really, it's really important, I think, to place into context where Afghanistan fit at that time. This was one of the last great conflicts of the Cold War, um, which ended about 10 years later. Uh, the, the ostensible reason that the Soviets uh, invaded Afghanistan um, uh, among the among many of the claims was actually by the Soviets themselves was counterterrorism. Uh, I don't think there was a lot to that at the time. I don't think people take it very seriously that that was a genuine threat. Um, it, what it really was was primarily uh, they they had been there was a communist regime that was friendly to the Soviets in Afghanistan, um, uh, but it was proving difficult to prop it up, and so the Soviets just decided for that and a number of other reasons. Um, you know, to kind of take matters into their own hands. That's how they did things back in the day. Um, it was a very, so it was a very Cold War, uh, a Cold War conflict. Um, we all, of course, remember, all those of us who were around remember, uh, this led to the first Olympic boycott, President Carter, Carter boycotted the, the, uh, the Olympics, Olympics in Moscow because Moscow, of the invasion. And I think somebody is not muted, Maybe it's better now. I'm getting some feedback, unfortunately, because of the, uh, or echo because of the muting or lack of muting. Anyway, um, uh, Afghanistan became another major headache for President Carter, who already had a lot of headaches at the time. Uh, right. Let's not forget the Iranian revolution had just taken place next door. Uh, the Iranian regime was holding host American hostages as they did for 444 days. Um, he had an underperforming U.S. economy, so Afghanistan also became a major political football in the United States um, uh, in that the United States was not prepared to respond militarily to the Soviet invasion, to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. But while we didn't respond directly militarily, uh, we did respond uh, primarily under President. It started a bit under Carter uh, and then picked up a lot of steam under President Reagan. Um, we supplied uh, fighters in Afghanistan uh, with weapons, with advice, 
Uh, we ran a lot of those operations out of Pakistan, just next door. Um, and Afghanistan over time became a rallying cry for global jihad and became one of the first kind of instances where we heard that kind of language of global jihad uh, emanating from the, from the Muslim world, uh, at least in a way that begins to intersect with us in some meaningful way. Um, many from the Muslim world began to, uh, many men, obviously almost entirely uh, from the Muslim world, began to uh, go to Afghanistan to fight, uh, to try to kick the Soviets out. Uh, we saw many, of course, in the Arab world, from Saudi, from Saudi Arabia, but even places far afield like the Balkans and, uh, and places like Indonesia. We find all kinds of people going to this, you know, again, arid, difficult place um, to, to fight a global jihad against the Soviets. We, of course, uh, allied ourselves with many of these forces, uh, some more than others. And of course, as you can see from the picture there, uh, one wealthy Saudi, uh, the son of a very famous family, Osama bin Laden, uh, also traveled to Afghanistan uh, to begin the jihad. Um, they were successful. Uh, the Soviet Union, as we know, was already uh, kind of on its last legs. Afghanistan was uh, really its, its uh, kind of last major foreign policy failure until, of course, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, the Soviets departed uh, in 1989, and a place that had already been very difficult, that had already been uh, subject to guerrilla fighting, to mass violence, uh, only became worse. Um, and it, it became almost a Hobbesian state of nature uh, after the Soviet departure. Uh, regional powers who had, uh, regional powers surrounding um, Afghanistan had sort of their own uh, proxies uh, to fight for control. Um, uh, it became lawless and really vicious. Uh, and then this group began to emerge called the Taliban. Uh, they, were not, they were not Pakistani, they were from Afghanistan, uh, but they were heavily supported by Pakistan. Um, they pledged to bring order and I mean, law and order uh, really is the best way to put it uh, to a country that was really suffering. Uh, the, the Taliban uh, took over a number of areas and began to carry out kind of a rough, a rough justice, and we'll get more to the Taliban in a minute uh, and what that means. But you had a population that was so exhausted and so frustrated um, by, you know, factions coming and going and taking territory and then taking territory back with civilians, as always in these situations, being the, the you know, the real losers. Um, uh, the Taliban began to become increasingly popular, especially in the South and in the East. It's important to remember that the Taliban are chiefly a, a Pashtun phenomenon. Uh, they were generally disliked and distrusted by the Tajiks and the other uh, minorities, and that still remains the case, you know, to this day. Um, they, again, with heavy assistance from Pakistan, uh, they began to take out quite a bit of territory, and in the end, by uh, 1992 or so, they took over much of the country except much of the North, um, which remained uh, under control of what became known as the Northern Alliance, um, which was, they were not exclusively Tajiks by any means, but heavily Tajik um, and, uh, and very anti-Taliban, very anti-Pakistan. Um, and the Taliban controlled Kabul and they controlled much of the country but never could quite uh, completely take control uh, over the north of the country. We all know what Taliban rule meant 
yes, it might have been a rough justice, but it was not a justice that any of us uh, could ever live with. Uh, it, it had a very, uh, to put it politely, medieval view of women and women's rights. Uh, education was pretty much downgraded across the country for everyone, but uh, girls were not allowed to go to school. It was a crime. Uh, women had no role in public life. Uh, and as you can see there, we're subject to all kinds of, of terrible abuse uh, for all kinds of imagined uh, offenses. And of course, the world probably remembers very well the, the images from the right there uh, on the slide of the Bamiyan uh, statues. These were uh, sixth century Buddhist statues, you know, pre-Islam uh, in Afghanistan, a real symbol of the incredible cultural uh, heritage of the country. Um, and the, the Taliban destroyed them. Uh, I, I've never, I have not, I was not unfortunately able to go to the site. Um, uh, they, they have preserved the area, uh, you know, as a, as a place to still try to uh, remember their illustrious past, but uh, alas, those statues are gone. What we also began to see during this period is Osama bin Laden and his friends established um, Al-Qaeda. Uh, and having first gone there to fight the Soviets, uh, the main enemy after the Soviet withdrawal of folks like Al-Qaeda became, of course, us. Um, and uh, Bin Laden believed that uh, there essentially needed to be a holy war uh, between the West uh, and Islam. Uh, he believed that, that uh, his brand of Islam and, and his kind of tactics could bleed the West dry um, and, uh, you know, and lead to the downfall, essentially, of the West. Um, he, of course, had no, made no strong distinction between military targets and civilian targets. Um, and actually, in my career, I had one of the very first kind of brushes, uh, in a way, with Al-Qaeda. I was serving in Pakistan, Lahore, Pakistan. I served there from 94 to 96. And on March 8th, 1995, uh, down in Karachi, another one of our consulates in Pakistan, there was a consulate vehicle with uh, our personnel, our diplomats, um, bringing people from uh, an apartment area in Karachi into work in the consulate. Um, a car stopped the van in the front, a car stopped the van in the back, stopped the van in the back, and uh, men got out and with AK-47s and shot up the, the van, killing three people. So this was one of the very early firing, uh, you know, shots fired in the war uh, that Al-Qaeda sought to start with us. Um, uh, it was exactly, this occurred exactly 30 days after Pakistan extradited Ramzi Yusuf to the United States for the first World Trade Center bombing. So uh, this was definitely done with intent. Um, and then, of course, we saw in 1998, only a few years later, the Al-Qaeda bombings of the uh, U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, uh, killing many people. Um, uh, Afghanistan, you know, on the world stage, was increasingly a counterterrorism concern. Um, but, but the world was not prepared uh, during this period to really do a lot to, uh, you know, overturn the, Talib overturn the Taliban's control of the country um, or necessarily to become incredibly active in the country, um, you know, just given that, again, Afghanistan is a small, poor country of 38 million people and people did, uh, you know, the Western world did not see it as particularly important, although obviously 
with Osama bin Laden using it as a base, it became increasingly important. And of course, we know what happens next. Um, this is, of course, one of those iconic events everyone remembers if they were old enough uh, where they were. Um, but, you know, it, uh, history is a funny thing. I mean, one of my kids was three years old when this happened, so of course was unaware. Uh, my other kids weren't born yet. So, uh, you know, we have to remember that for the, the younger generation, this is history and not as strongly felt uh, as all of us felt it on September 11th, 2001. I was serving in Finland at the time. I remember I went to a presentation of the Finnish parliament that day, um, came back a little bit late for lunch, was starving, went to our embassy cafeteria. I was the only patron there um, watching the Today Show uh, while I ate my lunch. And uh, it all, of course, unfolded as they began to see the strange story out of New York of a small plane hitting World Trade Center. Uh, and then I watched, uh, as so many millions did on TV, as the second plane hit uh, the World Trade Center. It became very clear this was not an accident. Um, and uh, the United States, of course, uh, gave the Taliban an ultimatum, uh, give up Osama bin Laden, uh, or we, there will be consequences. And of course, the consequences were that we went in and removed the Taliban from power. Um, and uh, Osama bin Laden, of course, eventually escaped uh, to Pakistan. So I think this chart is a little bit illustrative. Uh, I'm, of course, a diplomat, and it seems strange to talk about troop levels, but I think this gives you an idea of what the con what the course of the conflict looked like looked like over the years. Um, as you can see, 2002, 2003, there were actually not massive numbers of US troops uh, in Afghanistan. Um, and then, of course, uh, another event happened in 2003 that I think really impacted uh, the future course in Afghanistan. And that of course was the decision by President Bush um, to go into Iraq in 2003. Uh, a lot of resources, uh, military, intelligence, uh, diplomatic uh, and development resources were diverted um, to Iraq uh, during a time when we were, I think making some progress in Afghanistan uh, when the Taliban was really on its heels and not doing terribly well. Um, but my argument is, and I'm not the first to make this argument, I think many make this argument, uh, that we took our eye off the ball uh, in Afghanistan, uh, which after all was the country from which the 9-11 attacks emanated. And uh, in the meantime, uh, our friends in Pakistan uh, took advantage of the situation. Pakistan renewed its friendship uh, with the Taliban they had ostensibly broken off uh, with the Taliban um, for, you know, during the 9-11 engagement. Um, but Pakistan uh, probably does not want a country to its west um, that is a strong and stable country for probably a variety of reasons, mostly having to play into um, Pakistan's relationship with India over to its east. India is Pakistan's existential enemy. Um, and any nation that would be not under Pakistani influence or control um, and a close ally uh, of the United States, I think Pakistan would be concerned that that country would in turn um, uh, sort of bypass Pakistan, be close to India, and therefore give India you know, a, more strength in the region. Um, the Taliban uh, gained in strength 
gained in capability, uh, began to uh, take, you know, after being essentially defeated, uh, began to take some territory. Uh, and then you can see as the Taliban gained strength and as the Taliban uh, kind of picked up the pace of, the, of its attacks against the Afghan forces, we put a lot more troops in, reaching a peak of about 110,000 um, in 2011 under President Obama, the, the famous surge. Um, but I think we came to the conclusion that 100,000 troops still would not do it. Um, and there was an understanding, I think, developing around that time that what really needed to be done, perhaps the only way out of the situation, um, was to negotiate with the Taliban, to negotiate a peace with the Taliban. Um, uh, of course, Richard Holbrook, who many of you know is perhaps the most famous diplomat of the second half of the 20th century, uh, was working hard on this effort under the Obama administration, unfortunately died uh, in the saddle, as it were, um, working the issue, uh, actually uh, suffered a, an aneurysm um, in a meeting with Secretary Clinton at the time. Uh, President Trump pursued, in some ways, actually a fairly similar strategy uh, that became known as the South Asia strategy, uh, which was, again, that we, we need to facilitate an agreement among us, the Taliban and the uh, Afghan government <clears throat> to, reach an, to reach an end to the conflict. Um, so as you can see, even before the Trump administration came into office, trooper levels were relatively low, actually surged slightly, but then went back down again. And now, of course, as we'll get to in a minute, uh, are, are, in, are going to be going to essentially zero. Cost is high, uh, 2,300 US troops dead. Um, and of course, many, many more Afghans. Um, the financial cost is, is really enormous, uh, you know, upwards of uh, close to a trillion dollars uh, between military and civilian efforts. That's a significant amount of money. Um, uh, our, our work in Afghanistan revealed some of the, uh, the hardest parts about American development work, which is dealing with corruption, uh, dealing with waste, um, and just dealing with the complications of doing development, not just in a post-conflict situation, but in a conflict situation itself, uh, as the level of violence in Afghanistan, unfortunately, over the past six, seven, eight, nine years, uh, just keeps accelerating as the Taliban keeps the pressure on. Uh, and of course, for many years, we and the Afghan forces together uh, sought to keep them from making further territorial gains. Um, but the Taliban's gains in the country have been fairly inexorable. And what has been a significant change over the past five years or so is the Taliban have made many inroads in the north, uh, which was typically a place that where they could not, uh, they could not have much success. Um, I would argue the Taliban still remains broadly unpopular uh, in Afghanistan. The problem is that successive Afghan governments have had, have had a difficult time uh, proving to the Afghan people that they can also bring a measure of success and a measure of services and security um, to the entire country. So uh, the challenges remain incredibly significant. So what's the future of Afghanistan? As Janice alluded to, it's a million dollar question. Uh, you see two interesting photos here, which I think encapsulate some of the complications and problems. The photo, of course, of the young women in short skirts is from the 1970s. Um, this is not a picture that you would see in Afghanistan anywhere now. Uh, the picture on the right is likely from the 1990s. Um, 
Uh, now, to be clear, this picture from the 70s, I want to be very clear, was not representative of the country. Uh, they're, you know, in parts of Kabul uh, during that period, it was a, a highly westernized uh, or in some ways quite westernized place, but that's hardly indicative of what the rest of the country looked like. So let me be a little bit clear on that. Um, uh, but, you know, among the many challenges and concerns that the international community has, and certainly I have, uh, is uh, the future of, of women uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, if indeed the Taliban either take over the country by force or become part of a power sharing arrangement uh, with the current Afghan government, um, uh, we have a lot of concern. Everyone, I think, should have a lot of concern about the, the future of, of women and girls uh, in Afghanistan. Will the Taliban seek to bring uh, Afghanistan back to where it was in the 1990s? Um, the young, educated generation in Afghanistan, certainly from my experience there, um, are deeply worried and concerned, not just women, of course, um, about their future. Uh, any Afghan who was seen as working with the West, so obviously working with one of our embassies, working with the US military, working with NGOs that were funded by the West, uh, considered themselves a target. And unfortunately, many of them are targets, literally targets. Um, uh, had, this certainly, you know, this was going on, going on when I arrived in the country and has certainly gone, gone on when I've left of assassinations of government civil servants, uh, people who work for NGOs, media uh, people seem to be sub, as a real subject of violence. Um, chiefly the Taliban, not entirely the Taliban. Um, we also have seen violence uh, coming from a small ISIS cell uh, that exists in the country. And I, what I think is kind of under underestimated uh, is straight up criminality. Um, it, it's a very dangerous country, not just because of, of uh, terrorism, but just plain old criminality, ransoms, you know, kidnappings for ransom. Uh, and all that kind of thing. It, it's just, you know, it's not a place that is really a paragon of law and order. Um, President Biden's decision, uh, I think was predictable. Um, when he was vice president, he was very skeptical of the surge uh, that, that his boss, President Obama ordered. Um, he has for a long time said publicly, it's not been a secret that he thinks it's time for the war to end or our participation in the war to end. Um, that, you know, the reason we went into Afghanistan in 2001 was to eliminate uh, Al-Qaeda from being a threat to the United States. That has been mostly achieved, but there is still, you know, a real concern about a terrorism threat emanating from Afghanistan. Um, so there are definitely people out there who are saying we may have to go back in. I, I'm not smart enough to be able to predict that future or not. Um, uh, but obviously it's, uh, this will not be the last time I think that we will be thinking about Afghanistan or that it may become a preoccupation of American policy, um, you know, in the coming months and years, uh, a very complicated country, uh, because of course of its, of its difficult history, um, because of the, the sort of stature it had as a U.S. foreign policy issue really for 40 years, but especially for the last 20, um, and uh, you know, this day and age of video phones and all of that, uh, there will be more footage that comes out of Afghanistan that I think people might find uh, complicated or, or disturbing in the coming years.
Not an easy business diplomacy, not always. Um, I was really honored to serve there. Uh, you see on the left what I left behind. <laughs> so we don't bring our families there, of course, dangerous place. We're very well taken care of, but we don't bring our families there. Um, so that's my wife, Carmel, in the upper left with our, uh, with our three kids. On the right, um, that's, uh, that's me with my friend, Jerry Hodel, who is my deputy, um, I, the deputy political counselor when I was in Afghanistan. He spent a lot more time in Kabul than I have. He's done two tours in Afghanistan, both of which were multiple years. So if you really want to hear more about Afghanistan uh, and get a, a more educated perspective, I'm, I can certainly persuade Jerry, I think, to do a presentation for your group. Um, that's we're riding in a helo, as I mentioned, uh, most of the time getting around to different places. Uh, that's the way we got around uh, due to security. Um, uh, it's it's pretty dusty and hot usually in there uh, in that helo, but it, uh, but as you know, we were smiling. We we really enjoyed the work. Very dedicated uh, professionals, both on the military and uh, diplomatic side of the house. My main preoccupation in addition to, or my main duties, I guess you could say, in addition to the peace process, uh, which was really, or our peace, um, our efforts to come to a negotiated understanding with the Taliban, uh, we were also preoccupied with uh, trying to help the Afghans have elections. Elections in Afghanistan are really complicated. Imagine trying to have an election in a place with very low literacy rates, uh, very rough terrain, and oh, by the way, uh, pretty much a, a low level, uh, low or high level of violence, uh, including occupied areas uh, where the Taliban occupy and will not allow elections to happen. Uh, it's pretty challenging. Uh, and then when you add to that pretty low, low level capabilities to a degree to run an election, um, it was quite challenging. Parliamentary elections were delayed um, several times. Um, and by the time they were held during my time there, they were three years overdue. But I'm very proud of the fact that, that uh, my team and I worked very closely with the Afghan election authorities, security authorities, um, and our own military uh, to help the Afghans have elections that were by Afghan standards relatively successful. Uh, that is to say, a relatively low amount of violence um, and an acceptable amount of skepticism about the results. Uh, the, the Afghan parliament and the way the Afghan system works is not an incredibly important body. This was really critical because we needed to see if the Afghans were capable of holding uh, presidential elections, which have a much higher stake. It's a presidential system. The president has a lot of authority there. Um, those were due to be held uh, the following year. So this was a dry run because those elections, believe it or not, in 2018, were the first elections uh, that Afghanistan completely ran itself and did not have assistance from the international community. Um, so that was a big deal and it was uh, a modest success. Um, and they did have presidential elections the following year uh, that were, I would argue, also a modest success, uh, reasonably well run by Afghan standards. And uh, to no one, well, in a way to no one's surprise, the incumbent Ashraf Ghani uh, won re-election. Um, and is currently, of course, the president uh, of Afghanistan. Finally, uh, these are the flags uh, that I've, uh, of the countries that I've served in over my career. Um, I think one thing that's interesting as I was putting this together was I noticed the crescents in uh, three of the flags. Um, 
the crescent moon, of course, is the symbol of Islam. Uh, so Islam has been kind of a theme on and off for my career. Uh, it's been really fascinating for me. I, of course, as a kid from upstate New York, growing up in the 1970s, didn't know a lot of Muslims. Um, um, but it has been a bit, pretty big part of my career and very interesting part of my career, working with not just Muslims, of course, but uh, living in many other interesting places around the world. So you see there, Pakistan, Singapore has the crescent, but actually Singapore is not a majority Muslim country. Uh, Finland, Turkey, where, where of course uh, Janice and I work together as a majority Muslim country. Then over bottom row, North Macedonia has a small, not small, about a 25% Albanian community, which is predominantly Muslim. Uh, Slovenia, Afghanistan, and of course, Greece, uh, where I'm serving now. So I think I've hit my limit of about 45 minutes. Um, I moved quickly, I know. Uh, for all the folks out there who are beginning careers or even thinking of a second career, um, I cannot think of a better life for me or my family than the Foreign Service. Um, as I said, I'm in my 28th year as a Foreign Service officer, which is kind of scary. Uh, never expected it to last that long. Uh, my family and I have absolutely enjoyed living all over the world. Uh, it's complicated. It's not easy to move your family every few years. Um, it's not easy to learn new languages, and I'm pretty bad at it. <laughs> But um, I, I, for one, could not have thought of a better way to serve my country uh, and to live uh, in all kinds of interesting places around the world. And I'm certainly happy to talk to anybody offline. And you know, Janice knows how to find me. Certainly happy to talk to anyone offline um, who is considering the State Department as a career in any way, shape, or form. Uh, certainly happy to chat with anybody who's looking at that as a possible future career. So I will stop. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to chat with you. And Janice, I will turn it back over to you to lead us through Q&A. Um, thank you so much, David. Uh, it, uh, really a quick tour d'horizon of, of Afghanistan and where we stand now. We're now going to move to the Q&A portion of the program. Um, if you could stop sharing your screen at this point, it would be great, David. Yep, stop share. There. Um, perfect, thank you. So please submit your questions via the chat function. I've already noted a few that have come in during while, while David was talking. You can access the chat function by clicking on the chat box icon, which should be located near the audio and video buttons on your screen. While we wait for questions to come in, I'd like to mention again that this is ICFRC's last seminar for the spring semester. The program planning committee is working on its fall programs and we'll be sending out information about them in late summer and early fall. Finally, ICFRC is grateful to be able to make its online programs free and open to the public, but ICFRC relies on the support of its members and attendees in order to operate. If you're able to make a donation to support these programs, please go to www.icfrc.org donate. And with that, we will now transition into the Q&A session. Please feel free to turn on your video at this time if you'd like, but please remain muted. Um, so I will first go through a couple of questions that came in while you were talking. The first one was, you mentioned early on that, that tours are short generally to Afghanistan, and the questioner wondered if that presents problems in terms of building relationships and trust. Yes, <laughs> no question. Um, I, I had a lot of people tell me when I got to Afghanistan, though, and I think this kind of proved to be true, that um, a year in Afghanistan kind of seems to feel like three years anywhere anywhere else. 
And I guess what I mean by that is um, Afghans, you know, people who would have been my contacts, for example, people who worked uh, for President Ghani, uh, people in the NGO community, politicians, um, folks like that, uh, they over the years had become very used to working with us and they understood that our tours were short, typically one year or some one year or sometimes two years. And they were very amenable to that. They kind of understood that that's how our system worked. They were rather sophisticated, many of them. Um, and uh, whether they, you know, whether they spoke English or not, they understood how we worked. And they were actually very open and accessible to us. Um, there are, of course, many Afghans who don't like the United States. <laughs> but there are also many, Af or who are very skeptical of the United States. But there are also many Afghans who, who feel very close to the United States. Um, I mean, to be perfectly honest, because we liberated them from the Taliban, which was a, a miserable life for many. And uh, they, they were grateful. They were, on, I felt genuinely and honestly grateful. Um, and, and to be fair, many of them were, many of them, not all of them were also corrupt. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where you have to hold different ideas in your head at the same time and understand that people are complicated and have complicated lives. But actually, I found the Afghans to be very hospitable, warm people, um, very charming, actually. Um, and many Afghans, obviously the kind of cream of society, are incredibly cultured, uh, cultured and and uh, you know well-read, and uh, you know they they really do you know read um, ancient or read you know medieval poetry for fun. Um, very intellectual, some of them. So it's, and, and Afghan culture is a very, and the Afghan, the chief language in Afghanistan, Dari, is a very polite language. Um, and a very, one of these sort of languages that's very, you know, everything's in the passive voice and it's very polite. Um, and it's such a juxtaposition to see the incredible brutality and violence in a place where much of the culture is actually this very warm, welcoming, um, very deep and rich culture. It's it's an it's interesting and and of course very sad that the country has had such a, a terrible recent history. Indeed, um, I'm going to ask a, a couple of non-Taliban questions and then sort of group the Taliban questions together. So the uh, uh, and in terms of diplomatic work, is there much in the way of consular work at Embassy Kabul, um, and is there much tourism or travel in either direction? There is consular work. I mean, consular work is, of course, typically divided into a couple of categories. One, of course, is um, helping American citizens who are in the country where you're serving, and then, of course, the other is go is the other direction. Um, uh, you know, managing visas, both immigrant visas and visitor visas for Afghans, say, who want to visit the United States. The consular workload in Afghanistan is actually not huge, with a couple of exceptions. There are not a lot of private American citizens in Afghanistan. There are some. There are journalists, uh, NGO workers, um, chiefly. Uh, there are, uh, as in every country, dual Afghan US citizens who happen to live uh, in Afghanistan um, and they get passports and you know all the things American citizens get anywhere else, but that's not a huge number. Um, there are some non-immigrant visas uh, that Afghans could get to the United States, but you know, for almost all, visitor visas, you have to demonstrate that you have strong ties to your host country and are going to return. And that can be hard for Afghans sometimes because it's a very poor country with a lot of violence. Um, 
uh, we did have a lot of Afghans who went on, you know, visitor exchange programs uh, and things like that, students um, as well, uh, but not, a, not, I mean, a, a fairly big number kind of, you know, in terms of people went on official U.S. programs, but the overall number relatively small and a number of immigrant visas. And there's a special category of immigrant visa called a special immigrant visa that was, that's actually been in the State Department for many years where if you, serve in an Ameri if you serve as an employee of an American embassy for many years, um, typically at least 20, you could be eligible for an immigrant visa in the United States. Um, people who work for us uh, in Afghanistan, in particular in Iraq and other places take enormous personal risks to do so and could qualify for a special immigrant visa within a few years. And many take advantage of that um, and come to the United States. Um, understandably. Uh, do you know roughly how the number of NATO troops compares with the number of U.S. troops in Afghanistan? So if I remember right, uh, uh, the United States, I believe, always had the, the largest number um, of, of troops in Afghanistan uh, as a single country. Um, if I remember correctly from my time there, we were the single largest troop contributor, but we were not the majority. So when I left Afghanistan, I think we had uh, south of 10,000 uh, troops there, 8,000 or something like that. And I think our other allies contributed all together among them, probably 12 to 15,000 more. Um, but you know, coming from all the other allies. Uh, Turkey, I think consistently has been in the last several years, the second largest contributor. Um, Germany has a pretty healthy contingent. Italy has a healthy contingent. Uh, the UK actually used to have a lot more than it has now. Um, uh, their numbers are, are, have been getting smaller. Um, uh, and there also was a division of labor for many, many years in Afghanistan, especially more recently, where um, the, the other NATO allies were chiefly doing training uh, for the Afghan military. That was their main function. We also do that as well. Um, but uh, in terms of troops actually taking part in operations um, alongside Afghan forces uh, and providing air support and all that, that was almost entirely the United States. Thanks. Um, I'll wrap together a couple of Taliban related questions. Um, who funds the Taliban? Where do they get their weapons? And if someone joined the Taliban, what would they understand their mission to be? So, uh, you know, we don't know everything about where the Taliban uh, gets its funding, um, uh, but safe to say a lot of it's Pakistan. Uh, and uh, a lot of it is also uh, wealthy, um, you know, wealthy Saudis and folks like that who have, you know, some level of sympathy for, for the Taliban. That's probably their main uh, sources of money. Um, and don't forget Poppy. Uh, uh, Poppy is a major source of revenue for the Taliban. Uh, it's you know obviously incredibly hypocritical. You can't have a drink, can't have a glass of wine if you're a member of the Taliban. Uh, but it's perfectly okay to sell heroin, uh, basically tell heroin to kids on street corners. So you know where's the point of that? Um, uh, so they do bring in unfortunately quite a bit of money through that, as well as plain old other kinds of plain old criminality. Um, the other part, the other question is, uh, what, what would a, someone recruited to the Taliban see their mission to be? 
Um, my takeaway, again, there are people who know these issues better than I do, was a lot of, uh, what's the expression, all politics is local. Um, these are often local, not local grievances, but, you know, a poor farming family, uh, you know, uh, has issues, uh, you know, that the, the local government there is performing poorly, the Afghan government's performing poorly, not providing services, or in some cases, corruption is, you know, angering um, uh, people in the community. Uh, they're dissatisfied. The Taliban offer, you know, uh, offer an opportunity to, you know, to fight for their honor, essentially, or to fight for their tribe. Um, Afghanistan, particularly the Pashtun community, which again is the main, that's the main heartland of Taliban recruitment, uh, is a very tribal society. Um, there are tribes that affiliate uh, some more than others with the Taliban, so that can also play a role. Um, but I think a lot of it is local. And again, remember, it's not a terrifically educated population. Um, the, the Taliban leadership, I mean, they really know two things. They know fighting and they know the Quran or at least can recite the Quran. Um, that's what they know. Uh, I'll give you an interesting example actually, and who knows what this means for the future. But, you know, Taliban don't live in cities. Kabul is a big cosmopolitan city. It's poor, but it's lively and active and there are restaurants and cafes and stores. And I mean, it's a regular city, uh, unfortunately with high levels of violence. Um, uh, and uh, there are these amazing stories. When I was in Afghanistan, um, or actually just before I arrived in Afghanistan, about a month before I arrived in Afghanistan, there was a ceasefire, the first ceasefire uh, that the Taliban had accepted um, for for years in the you know at least ten years in the country, and um, uh, during E during the, at the end of Ramadan, which is actually just where we are right now, and um, Talibs you know young these are all don't forget these are mostly you know sixteen to twenty five year olds uh, they came uh, into the cities unarmed usually um, and they had not seen cities. They had not seen real cities. And there were these amazing anecdotes of them getting ice cream. And sometimes the locals, you know, scared, they knew they were Talibs, but they talked to them, they taught, they had conversations, they bought them an ice cream. And, and these Talibs had never had ice cream. Um, it's, a, it's a small anecdote, but I think it, it shows you kind of, you know, the, it's still a poor rural society um, and that's the heartland where the where the Taliban come from. Fascinating. I'm I'm going to pose one more question. We're coming to the end of our times. So this one has to do with NGOs. Um, how does uh, does the U.S. cooperate with NGOs working in Afghanistan? And uh, it's, it may be hard to generalize, but how are NGOs welcomed or treated by the local community and government? So we have very robust relationships with NGOs uh, in Afghanistan, uh, both international NGOs, um, as well as, as the Afghan, you know, indigenous NGOs that have, uh, that have been mushrooming in the country really for over the last 20 years. Um, Afghans who, genu who genuinely want to help their, their fellow citizens. Uh, it's also, if you get paid by Western, um, you know, by USAID or other or other uh, Western sources, you're also going to have you know a good life, um, and that's and that's nothing wrong with that. 
Um, uh, I mean, the USAID budget, I flashed that slide a while ago. I mean, you know, over the years, we've spent many billions. I can't remember what the number was, but um, 45, 46 billion, I think it was, USAID. A lot of that actually works through NGOs. I don't know the percentage, but a lot of it works through NGOs. Again, both international and, and indigenous Afghan NGOs. Um, the, it's a mixed bag, I think, sometimes the, the reception in the local community, um, but I'd say on the whole positive, but it's incredibly challenging work um, because the Taliban will just kill NGO uh, workers uh, for the most part, if they're seen as being aligned with the West. There's an interesting kind of mini exception to that, uh, which I found very interesting in my time there. Of course, one enormous uh, job that is continually being done in Afghanistan is demining. Uh, you know, the country was mined and mined again over and over again during times of conflict. And there are very respected international NGOs um, who do demining work in the country. And the Taliban, for the most part, um, there were many crises that popped up. The Taliban were tolerant of the demining groups. Um, the Taliban don't, they don't, they do, they use IEDs, but they don't lay mines per se. They, they do targeted IED attacks. And um, they were, they were tolerant of them, but for the most part, it's a dangerous living to work for an NGO in Afghanistan. Thank you, David. And, and thanks for all the good questions. Sorry, I couldn't get to quite all of them. Um, our time is coming to an end and we now conclude our program. And I want to give a big thank you to David Berger for his incredibly um, educational presentation and for sharing his expertise with us today. David, I don't have one with me, sorry, but I'm honored to virtually present you with ICFRC's highly coveted coffee mug uh, or coffee tea or the beverage of your choice. We will coordinate delivery details with you very soon. Um, thanks also to our viewing audience for, for joining us today. Um, have a great summer and we are adjourned. Mm -hmm.